Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Tom Ammon, and Micah Beck dig into new directions in network and compute. Well, hello, Tom. You're back with us today. And today we have Mika, who is going to talk about something that's a paper. And this is going to be a research paper. It's a new idea about how to, well, you know what? I'm just going to let Mika explain it. Why don't you start, Mika, by telling us where you're from and what you do for a living so that people have a sense of uh, where you're coming from here. Okay. So I am at the University of uh, Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm a uh, associate professor at the uh, Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. I'm a computer scientist. And um, I work in the field I kind of describe as generalized networking and, and convergence of networking, storage, and processing. Uh, so that's, that's the uh, topic of the, the paper. So that, compute, sto- compute storage and network. It's compute storage and networking. That's right. What, okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, so the I l- let me just give you a, a short, very short piece of history of how I got into this area. And I yeah, think that would be that would clear. be awesome. Yeah. You know, so I, I come from a, a, a couple of different backgrounds, but the earliest I, I was in distributed systems. I worked at Bell Laboratories and distributed operating systems back in the 80s. And um, I, I, I've worked in that area for a while. I got out of it. But when networking became important uh, through the in the uh, in the 90s, it was clear that the, the web was a happening thing. I had a look at it, and there was immediately an issue uh, that I recognized as one I'd seen before: that accessing static web pages, the stages pages just stored on disk, um, had an issue with bandwidth and with latency. Particularly, um, I could see in places that were not well connected, such as uh, rural schools in Tennessee was the particular target. And because we were accessing static web pages was before the advent of uh, server-side processing became ubiquitous, um, I, I saw that it, it was a, had the properties of a, of a storage system storage system with um, high latency and, and, and bandwidth issues. And I, I said, well, we deal with that all the time in distributed systems with caching. So I became interested in web caching. And pretty soon I saw that that was an area that others had, had started work on, shared web caching, and was pretty advanced. And I thought, well, how about the next step? The next step is preloading those web caches in order to uh, be able to have collections of data that is sitting there, let's say in a school, that uh, people can access locally at high bandwidth, uh, low latency, that gets updated periodically. So we we started looking into this kind of architecture uh, that uh, used web caches to put storage out at the edge and uh, use it to overcome connectivity issues. So we worked on that for a while and realized, first of all, that the web was changing, that it was becoming active on the server side. And so the idea that you were going to just fetch and store 
uh, web pages statically that that started uh, become kind of old. It became something that didn't didn't address a lot of the needs of what we saw were out there. And it was also we realized it was really difficult and kind of expensive to maintain all those replicated web caches. We tried replacing them with replicated servers. That just made it worse. We could do the active work, but but maintaining replicated servers that would give you exactly the same service was was tough, and, and we had a hard time making it work. So that's all sort of a prelude to the idea. What if we could put the storage, make it part of the scalable network, not have it be something that we added at the edge, uh, but we actually could integrate it. So that's where we parted ways with Akamai, uh, which was just just actually announcing and becoming uh, public at that point. But we decided to take a different approach, was to say, let's see if we can build a scalable network that includes storage and still make it manageable and make it scalable. So we we came up with this idea. We called it logistical networking. I can explain the name in a sec. It's kind of a an odd name, but the idea was to put servers out there throughout the network. Basically, almost any place that you had a router, you could have what we call a depot, and it would provide storage, it would provide persistence, but we would make it scalable by making it not a file server, but something much weaker, something which which provided a much lighter weight and much less strong service. And the idea was sort of following the idea of packet networking, which went from circuits to to packets and to datagrams, actually, which are a very weak service, we would do the equivalent with storage. And that's that's where we got the, the notion of logistical networking, which is an analogy with transportation. In transportation, you not only have highways, you also have warehouses. And warehouses are temporary storage, and they're not the same as your endpoint storage. They're not giving you all the same services, but they give you enough to allow you to use them to uh, solve logistical problems that you have. So that was the idea. And we, we defined a service. We called it the Internet Backplane Protocol. Uh, because we thought of it like we were treating the internet like a bus, and this was the memory. And we uh, deployed that, and we built applications that used it, and were able around uh, the, the turn of the century to do a lot of things that later and currently are done in servers using only very uh, either either only using these lightweight storage nodes or very lightweight servers that would do the control part of an application when we use the network for both the transfer and the storage. So that's that's how we got into this idea of convergence. Quickly realized we could actually add processing to this picture if we took a similar idea and made it very light processing, very weak. And again, I I could explain what weak means, but uh, it means you're not gonna gonna be providing data center services there. You're gonna be doing things that are much more limited, Um, but you can also do something 
if you think of what we did with storage as kind of a data, the equivalent of datagrams for storage, what we did was sort of the equivalent of datagrams for processing. And that gave us a, a model which um, we worked with for a good 10 years and did a lot of experiments, a lot of uh, uh, demonstrations, a lot of, quite successful um, in, a lot, in many ways. Um, and um, you can think of it as a foreshadowing of, of, virtual, of network virtualization and of some of the work on, for instance, containers, and other standard ways of putting processing into the network. But it takes a very different approach, which is instead of packaging up a, a, a heavy uh, sort of package of, of processing, it atomizes the storage and the processing into very small pieces and schedules them all in, in a very lightweight way uh, across different devices. This feels a lot like this is a precursor, like you said, to containerized networking, but it also feels like it's a precursor to edge compute. So how would you compare this to, say, edge compute? Okay, so comparing it, there's there's a technical comparison, and then there's kind of a big picture architectural comparison. So um, let me give you the technical, because this is a, a technical podcast. Let me give you some of the technical details of how uh, what we're doing differs from many of other approaches of putting um, state management, I would say, both storage and processing out in the network. Starting with storage, our allocations of, of storage are all time limited. Um, they have a maximum size, the equivalent of a network MTU, uh, minimum, a maximum transfer unit. We have a, a maximum allocation size, which is determined by the the depot the storage node it is best effort so you're not going to get a lot of uh, of guarantees out of this you have to as with a, a router uh, you have to deal with the properties the dynamic properties of the device and the path that you find uh, through monitoring and uh, testing to, to make sure of what you're getting. So, there, so there's no way to say, I want X and get it back. You just have to try things until you get like a, an MTU exceeded type message, like an ICMP would be. Well, so it, it's not to say you can't have have standards or, or community standards to make that easier so you don't have to do everything through the equivalent of, of MTU. You can, you can uh, we allow ourselves a little bit more metadata Okay. Uh, to, about the server in order to, to make it easier. Uh, one thing that's a, a difference is that we actually name the node. So on a path, you have to discover MTU by trying because you can't, in some sense, query the intermediate nodes directly. Uh, here, we actually name the nodes and allow the client to interact with each directly. So you can also have metadata that's associated with those those names. So on so, the on the on the storage side, how are we talking about block level replication, or is it? So this know. is this is more like um, uh, it's 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 what we call um, object storage or, or blob okay. storage. It's variable size, um, but it's primitive. Yes, the idea is uh, it's not. You, you may be able to fit your data into one. But it is not intended to, it's intended that you will 
you will allocate many of these and use them together to implement files, to implement distributed or replicated files. And in fact, we have a data structure, which is the analogy to the Unix inode, um, which we call the X node, which we use to aggregate these allocations. Um, we, that's what we call them. They're not blocks because they're not fixed size. Could call them objects, but that's a somewhat ambiguous term. We call them allocations. You aggregate them into um, files, but it's a very generalized notion of a file. And how does how do the edges of the network interact? Do I do, does the warehouse node request something that has been requested of it downstream, or is it a push model from a centralized controller uh, entity? So, or? so what we've done is to uh, adopt a, a minimal design strategy. So, the idea here is we wanted scalability and generality. So we tried to put as little policy and mechanism at the low level as possible. So the idea here is that the nodes are exposed, they have names, and uh, you have to have some notion of how they relate to the network topology, or it's going to be hard to, to use them. It could be a virtual topology. Uh, you could use various kinds of metrics. In, in fact, it works best if you, if you have a topological picture of where, where, where they are in relationship to one another. Um, that's, that's something that, that actually gave us a lot of trouble early on because we were implementing this in overlay on the internet. Uh, but there are tools for doing that, for getting some of that kind of in topological information. Um, and so actually it's very, it's really very simple. The major operations of what you can do on the storage side are allocate, load, move data into an allocation. No, actually, load is getting it out. Store into and load, it's backwards. I'm sorry, I haven't done this in a while. So it, it's read and write. And the, the thing that's somewhat unusual is transfer between buffers. So transfer between buffers that doesn't require the client to, to handle the data directly, a third-party transfer. And then there are a few management operations, sort of miscellaneous management operations uh, that have to do with things like reference counts in order to uh, keep track of them. But that's pretty much the interface. The idea is that the kind of questions about how you relate this to the movement and storage of data are higher level and are not handled in, in the network. That, that you will have, if you will, uh, a separation of data plane with, from control plane. And the control plane will be responsible for everything except movement and storage of data. So this is different than something like ZeroMQ because you're actually telling it where to store the data. Whereas with something like ZeroMQ or RabbitMQ, it's just whoever's running on that particular bus gets all the data that's related to that, correct? That's correct. So, so the, the, this is one of the things that has been sort of a architectural uh, journey for us. We started out with the idea that we were going to expose the nodes, okay? And we're exposing what's on each node, and we're going to do things like replication outside of the network, not inside the network. And so this made this something which it, it worked well. It just meant that we had, uh, a, a, for instance, uh, if you needed a control layer that did naming, that did permissions, that did various kinds of uh, control uh, of other kinds, it had to be in a separate process, generally ran on a Linux server. And then it would be uh, using 
the network and the storage in the network as a data plane that it was that it was moving moving data around in and the linux part the control part could itself be distributed but that was sort of outside that was not what we were supporting that would have to be done through conventional means what we wanted to do is make sure that the part that was in the network could be as interoperable and scalable as possible so that was the 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 sort of decomposition so just okay. to give you an example there are things you can do with no control plane just the applications one of the early things we did was to record video into lar- what were for the time very large video files we would upload it into our our data depots uh, we would have to do it in a form that was uh, spread across many allocations and uh, perhaps distributed and replicated in order to get robustness out of the storage. But then we could take the metadata, we could take the information about what the data was and where it was stored, our X node, and we had a serialization of that in, in XML originally. And we could send that, which was much smaller, in email. And a receiver could use that to, down, to, to play or download the file. Okay, so we had the equivalent of what you might call Dropbox type of functionality today. Uh, we didn't have any servers other than our depots. Okay, now there were some issues uh, because of the fact that, you know, we got over the fact that each allocation is, is limited in size by aggregating them with their metadata. Uh, we had more of an issue with the fact that they were time limited. Okay. The way we made this a service that has no notion of identity, has no notion of, of billing or of quotas, it's all done by fair contention as with the internet. The way we felt we would get away with this is by putting time limits on, on the storage. And so when you received your X node for your video file, um, it wasn't good forever. Uh, you had to use it before the data evaporated underneath you. So this is a limiting thing because of the fact that we, if when you received it, you could do, you could seek to extend the leases. You could, you could, you could uh, uh, go through and do what we call warming it to seek to extend the leases to keep it around, but you can be told no. And if you're told no, then it's your responsibility to either move the data somewhere uh, find another allocation somewhere. It's not the responsibility of the node on which the data resides. It's giving you best effort service. So was there any any thought given to or any framework around prioritization? Like once the system became loaded, some things are more important than others, or was it just pure first come, first serve? It, it was pure come, first come, first serve. We had only one notion of prioritization. We had what we called hard allocations and soft allocations. Hard allocations were best effort. Soft allocations were less than best effort, and we used it as a way of using idle resources uh, in file systems to provide even even more transient uh, storage. So uh, when you got the hard allocations, uh, the, the machine would do its best, as with a router, best effort. Uh, what we're we're telling you when we give a soft allocation is there may be uh, other users 
that are, are higher priority than you, not within our system, but other users of the same storage that, that may take it away from you. So it would become less stable than the hard allocations. So that was the only, other than that, the idea was, no, we're not going to have priorities for the same reason that the internet does not have priorities. Sure. Um, we we uh, uh, basically, I would say, followed the, the design lead of the internet, <laughs> understanding that there are issues that come along with that, and, and we're all familiar with those, um, including especially distributed uh, and uh, denial of service attacks and, and other kinds of things having to do with the min minimality of the internet with the idea being that we could use analogous approaches to try to deal with those issues. If we could have anything like the kind of success that the internet had in spite of those, uh, those issues, we would consider ourselves uh, quite successful. That's really interesting. What about um, something I just thought of? What about um, topology? So when you, you have a bunch of data warehouses out there, is that what they're, sorry, is that the unit that they're called? We call them depots, yeah. Depots, sorry. You have depots um, and you have, say, have a hundred of them. Uh, is there any notion of the relationship between each other? Is there any sort of topology or, or hierarchy involved? So, okay. So now that opens up. So I've given you the technical sort of a, of an answer about at least the storage side, how it compares to say file storage or many other more traditional kinds of storage that were originally developed for use in local area networks or storage networks. So I've given you that technical story. Let me just make an aside and we could come back to it if you're interested in. The processing storage is completely analogous. The unit, the larger unit is not a file, but a process. And the smaller unit, the thing analogous to a block is, think of it as a time slice or an operation. What's today may be called a Lambda. And the idea is we don't give you the ability to run a process in the network. We give you the ability to invoke a Lambda or invoke a time slice and you are responsible, you being the higher level uh, control to concatenate those into uh, uh, what your notion of a process is. So that's that's just, uh, I'll, I'll put that aside. Those are the technical approaches we took, okay? So these are like, so these are like lambdas, say something like a lambda in, uh, in an AWS context. In that it's context, almost... yes, yes. Okay. So, so, so if you think of the lambdas though, our lambdas, if you want to call them that, well, we just call them op, the only inputs and outputs that they act on our storage allocation okay so that's the point this is integrated now the 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 storage and the processing and movement are all integrated around the allocation or buffer if you will as the central uh, uh, theme the central uh, object that everything acts on and just put that aside but that's our strategy our strategy is is take all of the things that were created for non-distributed environments to live on one node and therefore could be heavyweight, allocate a lot of resources and keep them indefinitely and break them up into their constituent pieces uh, and, and make them make it so that you have to, you have to um, schedule them back into an aggregate, but you also now have enormous flexibility in how you do that scheduling. Okay, so the question of topology is actually really key <laughs> because it was both our 
our bane, our sticking point, and ultimately gave us, I think, some insight into a different light way of doing of what we were doing and of how to think about what we're doing. So the problem with topology, of course, is if we're doing this in overlay on top of the internet, we're not supposed to know anything about topology. We're not supposed to be able to see the topology. From a very early time when we were dealing with uh, replication of web servers, there was this question, what do we do about resolution? If you, if you have a request and you have to decide which server you're gonna pick, what's the notion of which is the best one to pick, which is a very simple form of topological information. So that was the first thing, and we actually uh, initially looked at solution, commercial solution. The, the Cisco distributed director uh, was a solution at the time which was proprietary. You had to be using Cisco routers. Um, and actually what it did was it, uh, uh, the, the distributed director was a BGP listener. Uh, that would uh, give you information about topology from, from that information. So we, we experimented with that. And of course, the issue is it's proprietary. It's not very scalable. It's not an easily deployed solution. Um, we also did overlay kinds of uh, topology where we used uh, sonar. Now it's per sonar. Uh, but it's, you know, looking at metrics uh, that you are allowed to do on top of the internet and, uh, and using those as a virtual topology. That, that also works adequately sometimes, but you're not getting down to the real brass tack. And this was an issue that was concerning because solutions that expose the topology uh, had the, 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 the issue of whether that was going to make your solution less scalable, less stable, uh, because topology is, there's a reason that the internet uh, was going to hide topology from you. Uh, this is something I wrestled with quite a bit, and I was also wrestling with this idea, this question: where in the where in the stack our storage and our processing really belong? Uh, we put it on top of the internet because that was the only thing what was accessible to us, and conceptually, that's what made sense to us. That's where web caches live. That's where replicated servers lived. But it occurred to me pretty early on that once you had buffers and the ability to transfer data between buffers and processing capabilities, and you don't need that much, you could in fact implement datagram forwarding on top of this service. And that always, that sort of nagged at me because the question was, well, what would that mean? What, would it make any sense? Would it be a good idea? And it eventually led to the idea that what we were, in some sense, architecturally doing without realizing it is modeling the resources of the intermediate node at a layer that is architecturally below global routing, okay? That's what we were doing step by step by looking for the resources that would enable us to overcome the problems of point to multi-point service uh, uh, creation, what we were doing was sort of burrowing down towards the intermediate node. And if you look at the intermediate node, if you look at the router itself, it has storage and it has connectivity to its neighbors in the local area with knowledge of topology. Some people might call that a stack layer violation. 
You could call it a stack layer violation. Yes, that, that's what bothered us about it. That's what bothered us about trying to get the topology information. But another way of looking at it is we were defining a virtualization of the router, of a generalized layer two. And that we were in fact creating something which, yes, you could in fact implement datagram delivery on top of, and you couldn't, you can in fact implement a whole lot of other services on top of distributed file system, the equivalent of content delivery networks. Those can all be implemented on top of this. One way of dealing with the topology question is to say, no, expose topology to this layer and then let the higher layers hide it or abstract it in the way they need to. If you do that, what you've done is created essentially a, another stack which has a spanning layer, a common service layer at layer two, okay? And you could implement the internet on top of it. It wouldn't be necessarily a very well-adapted implementation of the internet at this point because you, you've essentially taken the router software and pulled it apart into pieces and tried to reconstruct it. But that's not the point. The point is not to re create the internet, the idea is to create heterogeneity in global services, to create other services that could sit next to datagram delivery using the same model of the intermediate node and the local area network, but to do network, the network layer in perhaps different ways. Um, so, so maybe try to make it a little practical for people who are listening here. How would, how would you implement something like, say you ran a bank and you wanted to build a banking application that millions of people might use? Explain how you might implement that in this type of a system um, so that people understand because, you know, this is very similar to me in many ways as edge computing, which you were talking about before, which is data caching, right? Having caching at the edges, but this is a more active version of caching because you have processing and compute, or you have compute and storage, not just the storage, and the storage is not kind of dumb storage. It's actually smarter storage because it's combined with compute. So this comes closer to, I think, what I would consider edge compute. So let's just walk through a use case and figure out what would it look like so that people would understand. Okay, so... Let's, let's do that. So in this stack, the idea is that we have nodes that have storage. You can think of it as a buffer service. Okay, although it can be rather long-lived compared with what we call network buffers. Uh, you can think of it, it's, it's your persistence portion of the node. You've got the ability to, to do operations on the data that's in those buffers and they have the ability to move between buffers on one machine or to adjacent nodes or, or nodes that are connected in the local area network. So we have a, a standard interface to that, okay? And so we can create nodes um, that have that interface, and now we have a banking application that can access, say, all the nodes in a local area network. And so it can, it can say there are a bunch of ATM machines, okay? So you can in fact have one process, say running on a Linux server, which controls all of the, the resources of those machines, 
okay? Uh, you have to do something about I.O., about actually actuating things. But that that's, uh, let's put that aside for a moment. So you could have a, a data plane which stores data and can do processing and move data, but the control aspects are in a server in that local area network, which is doing all of the uh, the policy level and the application level work and using those low level resources as, as worker nodes, essentially. So if you, if you want to think of what this is like, this is like a multiprocessor where you have issue coming from one place and you have a data plane, which is spread out uh, in a distributed way but it can be controlled from one place. That's how you can have a lot of coordinated work going on among those, those machines being controlled centrally within the local area network, okay? And now the idea is if there is going to be any transfer of information out of that local area network, it's gonna be coordinated through that control node. Okay, so what this gives you the ability to do is to is to have a, a, a distributed unit, which which has the benefits of being distributed, uh, but is uh, uh, coordinated by a node that that has access to to all of the distributed pieces, and then when you want to go outside of that locality. You apply the policy and security mechanisms, perhaps identity, all of those higher level ideas live not at that lower data plane, but in this higher control plane. So going back to the application concept, what you would have is you would have an app, say you would write some part of your business logic, say, this person can uh, access their checking account information. That might be written into this little bit of storage with a particular um, business application that runs locally all the way out to the edge. So much like edge compute, but more generic. Like I can actually just go say to a provider, I would like to um, put this out at your edge, or I would like this to go wherever it needs to go to reach my customers, sort of a thing. And then as people would try to log in, then they would hit this initial piece at the edge rather than hitting it further into the network, being transported all the way to the data center to get there. Is that something? So, like- so um, let, let, let's see. The, the, I'm, 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 the choice of a banking application, I, I mean, so I'm an academic. I have to admit, I, I, most of the applications that we work are with are more data-intensive Kinds okay. Of well, let's let's go back to IoT. Let's say something like an IoT type thing where you're trying to gather data. Right. Um, so 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 again, the idea of the benefit of this way of dealing with infrastructure is once I have this generic node, this generic view of all the nodes in my in, in the domain that I'm working in, then another application. Okay, you can have two applications, both of them using these same set of data plane nodes, things that store data, that move data, and that process them. And they can use them simultaneously, and they can compete for their, 
for for access to them. Okay, that is that is uh, uh, so. So the idea there is that I can write an application, which what does it do? When I run it in the local area network, it discovers what resources are available to it locally, and then can use those resources even if they're simultaneously being used by other applications. So in the IoT case, you may have sensors that are feeding data into buffers. What you're doing is light processing to, uh, say, compute averages, uh, aggregate information, um, uh, even do learning uh, of some kinds or pattern matching at the edge. And you can have the same nodes both at the very edge, then closer in if they're, if they're uh, say, hierarchically arranged. And you can do things like reductions of data that are specific to a particular application, but you can spread them across those nodes and have them, in some sense, be running on a single control node, which, which sees the, all of the, the, the nodes in a locality. So what about, okay, so let's look at another example, maybe. Um, what about content delivery? If you, were to, if you were to go back and rebuild a CDN using this framework rather than what has currently been built, um, most of the CDNs are doing the same things. So um, how, would you, how would you use this framework to build an improved CDN? Okay, so the simplest thing to say is if you have a, a, a network which is well enough connected from the point of view of just um, say say uh, uh, the internet connectivity, that a single control node can send control uh, operations, can essentially invoke operations throughout the network, then essentially you can build a tree for multicast by allocating buffers on nodes throughout the network and then transferring data in tree fashion, the way that multicast does or CDNs do in overlay, but you can, you can do it from a centralized control plane, okay? So that's in the case where you have a good enough control connectivity to actually operate the entire CDN from one place. Now that, that's kind of a tall order. So what we usually say is when your CDN gets large, it means you can break it down into regions where you can have a control node doing the tree structured distribution in each region, and then those regions can peer. This is where the hierarchy and topology uh, notions. Exactly, exactly. So so if each of those pieces is a locality, a, a topological subnet, then you can have all of that access and control from the control plane down to the the local data plane in pieces, but then they're going to have to get together in some kind of a peering arrangement between those pieces of the control plane and negotiate with themselves how they're going to share their resources. Sure. Okay. So that's the idea. So the notion then, once you've got that in place, you can actually move data out from a central point through the tree out to the edge nodes. You can move data in the other direction from the edges towards the center, okay? And again, coordinating it in an in a inverse uh, multicast coming out from the edges towards the center. And now 
using those lightweight operations that I told you about, you can do reduction operation or sorting operations in the middle. So one of the experiments we did was fairly early on um, in, in a well-connected network, we built a tree of buffers and did movement of data from the edges towards the center. What we assumed that we had records that were time-stamped. So you had increasing timestamps on the records coming from each of the, the edge nodes. And all we wanted to do at the intermediate nodes was merge them so that you always had ascending order of the timestamps. So that, so that when you get them back to your central node, they're actually already pre-ordered. That they're already pre-ordered, exactly. So that we weren't doing anything more complicated than that. We weren't doing any serious computation. We were looking at those records and we were making decisions about which records we would move into which buffers based on the timestamps. So it's, well, it's this is where your IoT example, Russ, could be right. This yeah. could come into focus for that, right? So or, or, even network, or even network monitoring, right? Telemetry. Right. And what we found um, was that we could do that um, at line speed, which with the, at the time was one gigabit per second. Okay, we could we could use parallelism at the node, um, and we could use, I'm sorry, we could use pipelining. We had to use pipelining to overcome the latency of issuing the operations from a central controller. So we had to we had to do some tricks with the the protocol that that was invoking the operations in order to overcome that latency. But when we did that, we were able to to do that uh, at at effectively line speed. So the the notion about that is the only thing that we did that was specific to that application was to have an operation that could do the comparisons uh, for us, um, given the, the type of the record that was being compared, that was the only thing that was specific to the application that lived on the node. Everything else was essentially a stream of instructions coming from the control plane to, to, drive, to, to, to drive that tree um, and to, to create a, a uh, emerging uh, process that covered all of the nodes uh, of the tree. Remind me, I can't remember if you said what the time frame was. When, when was this built? This, this, this the, experimentation was done roughly 13 years ago. So at the time, did you have, what were the discussions you had around security? Um, obviously, there are multiple places you could exploit uh, a, so place, a system like this. Security is another one of these things that started out as a thorn in our side, right? Um, we, were, we started out, we said, we were dealing with data that initially we, we were going to deal with, with public data and we were getting it out, as I said, to schools and to, to applications where we weren't dealing with sensitive things. That's, we sort of um, tried to get ourselves off the hook for data when we started doing this, realizing that that was, that was uh, not going to be the final answer. But we wanted to, we really wanted to deal with storage and movement of data initially. And we didn't know what to do about security. What was the problem with security? The problem with security was we were putting this in overlay on the internet. And so if we said we don't have identity and we're not doing, we're not doing 
security, just as the internet did not do security. What that meant is we were creating a service, actually was kind of legally problematic <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> we had to look at the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. The question is, are we providing too many resources in an anonymous way? Um, could this be a problem? The way we, we made it not actually illegal is the fact that we don't provide any directory service. So you can't use this for rendezvous. Uh, and in fact, the names of the files are long random keys or capabilities that are generated by the servers. So the idea is when you allocate space, no one else can see that space unless they are actually handed the key by the, the allocator. So that, that, that's the kind of thing we did to enable multiplexing, but we still weren't worrying about security. And so the issue was, okay, suppose we, I mean, long cryptographically secure keys, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, but there was always this issue of if we put storage out there and we said anyone who can reach it can store into it, uh, isn't that going to be an issue? What if it gets put to bad use? And so I've, if I've created a node and someone stores something there that's evil, then am I responsible? Now, that's a kind of a touchy matter because um, with networks, we allow data to flow through a network that the operator of a network is not responsible for. If you look at rules about, for instance, copyright, they're very fuzzy. What they say is you can, you can cache data that you don't have a license for, uh, but not for an unreasonably long period of time. So, so when it becomes storage, it becomes trickier. So we felt we had done a good job of, of essentially multiplexing so that users couldn't see each other's data, but we hadn't protected these nodes from abuse. Okay, And that was a problem, for instance, when we looked at putting one of these nodes at a national laboratory, um, even if, if uh, uh, it, it couldn't be used to attack the laboratory, the danger that someone would store something embarrassing there and it would end up in a headline, uh, that was bad enough. So security was always an issue. We said if you, if you really care about your data, do end-to-end -end encryption. Same story as, as the internet. But we didn't have this issue of uh, really down of uh, what about just getting access to the resource at all? What about denial of use? And the reason that we were vulnerable to that is because we were layering our service on top of the internet. So we always knew we had this possibility. If we, if we just screened out who could access our nodes by IP address, then we could create a locality where only certain clients could access a particular node, okay? And so we thought about doing that. We said, how about if we put our storage depot inside a local area network, and we say, you can only reach it from inside that local area network. Well, that's going to, it's going to mean that it restricts its usefulness, okay? But what if we were to say, okay, suppose we have an enterprise network and we allow anyone within that enterprise network to access any of the depots within that enterprise because it's a single enterprise, but only edge depots can reach depots outside the enterprise. 
Ah, so it but, becomes like a proxy, essentially. So then you could think right. of it like a proxy. Yeah. This is also right. something very similar to the topology problem, though. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and this kind of clicks with the issue of the fact that we were, in a sense, actually modeling the intermediate node. If instead of layering this on top of the internet, a globally routed internet, we were layering it on top of a local area network, then we would get a kind of security, a, a kind of restriction of access, which says only those who can c get into that local area network can access it. So in, in a sense, what we're saying is, if you take the point of view that this service we're creating is a local service, and we say, just like with a router, you can, you can have local security for accessing it, okay? But that is only gonna get you access to, to, to things in your locality. If you want something outside your locality, well, you could call it a proxy you have to go through. The other word for that is a gateway. So this is the picture where our nodes and our service are a local area service. It doesn't have to be literally a local area network, but it's a trust community of some kind. And it's the next layer up. It's the what I've been calling the control layer, or another name for it would be layer three, would be responsible for building bridges with other networks. One way of doing that is the way the internet does it through peering agreements and, and connectivity agreements. But you could have much more careful agreements, agreements that were, say, based on the, the uh, identity and permission structure of a distributed file system. So if you did that, what you would have is a distributed file system, which was not using global routing as how you get outside the local area network. It's instead using its own policy and mechanisms to decide when that's safe. Cool. So the picture is, and this is again, it's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> here's the suggestion. The suggestion is at some point we had local area network. We wanted to combine them. And someone designed the internet said, how about global routing? How about every node can connect to every other node? Because they were creating an internet where there was going to be a single networking model for the entire world and for all applications, it seemed like that was what they had to do in order to, to, to stretch across the world and to stretch across all the different applications. So that was an assumption. The assumption is every node would be able to send to every other node with an address. Okay, if you're going to have just one model seems like that's probably going to be the, the most effective one for making your network grow. The other side of it, though, is everyone gets to attack everyone else. You have direct access to the NICs of every potential receiver. And that is the basis of almost all cyber warfare. There's an alternative, which would be to say the way that you knit the global network together is in a more application-specific way. If you're building a distributed file system, you use the security and identity mechanisms of that file system. If you're building a content delivery network, you use whatever is appropriate there. And so you could, so, so basically I, what I'm hearing is that you could, you could address this at, use the network for admission control, or you could say application, it's all on you, but the mechanism as it stands uh, doesn't really take a stance, it feels like. Well, it, I, I, I refer to what we have now as promiscuous global routing. <laughs> okay, which I like is it. everyone everyone can get to everyone else unless you put a firewall in the way. 
Sure. Or unless you happen to be behind a gnat, that's a later thing. But it's promiscuous. You just make everyone accessible to everyone else. That is um, something which, what, it's sort of inherent in Ethernet. And the, the datagram delivery model in the internet has inherited that. And it is very good for growth and for not getting in the way of application development. But it takes a level of control away from the creator of global services, one which every global service then has to work against to try to get back privacy and security. Yeah, that could, and, maybe maybe we ought to have you on again sometime to go th- get yeah, more into the security part. A little bit. Yeah, <laughs> so so, so, so I, the, the bottom line not yet about that is, in some sense, viewing this not as an internet service on top of the internet, even though it can be implemented that way, but as something that allows you to create pieces of service that are local and then knit those together into global services. Okay, it, it gives you access to topology for performance and other kinds of, of reasons, but it also gives you control over security because if you restrict who can send between localities, it's essentially becomes a whitelist instead of a blacklist. Yeah. Then every service that connects localities can have its own policy. There are a couple of other things that uh, are related to this that I, w- I would point people to. One is a paper called On the Hourglass Model, which is actually uh, does not describe, th- does not talk about this particular development, but talks about the architectural ideas behind it. And the idea in particular of keeping uh, the, the spanning layer, the common layer, minimal what that means and, and, and how that plays out, how that has played out in the uh, design of the internet and actually of the, the Unix kernel interface also. But we also have a paper uh, called uh, Data Logistics Toolkit and Applications that talks about both the software that implements the architecture I've been talking about, the Data Logistics Toolkit, and uh, a number of of example applications uh, that we have implemented in, I would say, pilot implementation stage. Great. So we'll point people to that in the show notes. And Tom, you're still not blogging, but you're still available. You say that every Whatever. (laughs) So you're you're on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Tom Ammon. Just my name. Tom Ammon. Uh, that's so hard. I don't think anybody <laughs> will remember that. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I know I can't. See, I have to ask you every week. But that's good. All right. Well, thanks, Mika, for coming on. And uh, we'll try to get thanks you Thanks for having on. me. Yep. Try to get you back on in the future to talk more about some of this stuff. Thanks. All right. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.